Let us pray. Father, we thank you that we can come together in your presence, that we can grow closer to you because that is your desire for us, is relationship. And Father, we thank you that you are a good king, a righteous king. And Lord, we, we longingly wait for the day when your kingdom comes. But Father, we just pray that, that today, that the truth of your word would permeate our hearts, that the words that come out of my mouth would be yours, and those that aren't would be cast aside. Lord, I thank you for these people. I thank you for this opportunity. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, if you did not get a chance to hear Pastor Chris's sermon, it, uh, I highly encourage you, it's online, uh, go. I've actually listened to it three times. That's not bragging, that's just, uh, uh, it was that good. And um, we focused on Psalm 50, verse 6. This statement from the psalmist, the heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. And Pastor Chris asked us, what did Asaph see there? What, what was it that he saw that we struggle to see, I think? This idea that the heavens declare his righteousness. Why did he write that fact? The suggested answer, which uh, I believe to be true personally, is that uh, Asaph understood that the one who made all of this, well, he does things right as so eloquently stated. He is eternal. He doesn't change. He doesn't evolve morally. And if I may insert a reoccurring term, he is steadfast. It was a great, great thing to walk away on Sunday, actually after church, um, knowing that I was going to be teaching this week because Pastor Chris is very gracious and I asked him if I could. Um... I have some, some dear friends in from, from out of town who've known me since I was probably in just out of diapers. So if you really want some, some embarrassing stories, they're probably the ones to ask. But uh, um, I asked him if I could teach, and then after church on uh, Sunday last week, we were talking over here. And I said, that one's going to be really hard to follow up on, first of all. And second of all, it's not Palm Sunday this week, and it's not Easter. That's coming. Uh, by the way, next week I will be teaching uh, down in Alcoa at Hope Community Church uh, on Palm Sunday, so I'd appreciate your, your prayers and uh, your thoughts for that. But I said to him, I don't know where I'm going to go with this, because quite honestly, some sermons just come to you, as he mentioned, sometimes in your quiet time, sometimes in your prayer. Where am I going to go? This isn't Palm Sunday. This isn't Easter. That's all coming up. And I'm going to let you in on a little bit of insight as to what the type of um, compassionate man that your pastor is. That our, um, He smiled at me and said, well, I think on Easter Sunday, I'm going to preach on the resurrection. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Okay, so that, that does not help me, but good for you. So... Uh, <laughs> So anyway, so then I kept going back to this righteousness thing. Righteousness. I just couldn't get this out of my mind. This righteousness. The heavens declare your righteousness. And this week as I was praying, 
and I was studying about it as we approach again Palm Sunday, I kept thinking, okay, um, what can I teach this week that will, will kind of carry that theme of righteousness into Palm Sunday? Because we know what happens in Palm Sunday. So watching, uh, I'm sure a lot of you have watched a little bit of basketball coming up uh, th- this week, this past week. There's been a lot of it going on. And I don't know anything about basketball. I know that you get two points if you're in a certain spot. And you get three points if you're in another spot, that sort of thing. But I've watched enough of it to know that at some point in the process of trying to score, there's one player that takes the ball and feeds it to the person that's going to make the score. To give you a volleyball analogy, my job this week is to set the ball up so that next week Pastor Chris can nail it over there. So try to get that image out of your head while we're going through this here. So if we're going to toss around the term righteousness, I want to make sure that we're all on the same page here as to what definition that I'm using. And I actually went back, ironically, to Martin Luther and to the Lutherans. They have, in their tradition, two types of righteousness. The first type is called coram dio, C-O-R-A-M-D-E-O. It's righteousness in the eyes of God. They sometimes refer to this as passive righteousness or the righteousness of faith. It is the righteousness of the gospel. See, we receive this from God. It's passive because we don't have to work for it or do anything to earn it. A person is righteous in that sense, coram dio, when they are in right relationship with God, when they receive forgiveness of sins through faith. Now, the second type is referred to as coram mundo. That's righteousness in the eyes of the world. Now, being in right relationship with other created beings, with other people, and today we're going to focus mainly on the first one, Coram Dio, but, but I feel led to, to at least um, say this. I don't believe that the two have to be mutually exclusive or be against each other. If you are in Coram Dio, if you are in right relationship in the eyes of God, then I believe that there will be a, a desire on the human side to be in right relationship with us as well, Coram Mundo. I think that one can bring about the other one. That doesn't mean that they can't also conflict. It's very easy for us as people to look at what the world's doing around us and say, huh, that doesn't seem so bad. But the question is, is when we go that way, are we still in right relationship with God? which should be our primary goal. See, our God desires relationship with us. He wants quorum Dio, right relationship with Him. So to that end, we have to accept the other part of what Asaph says in Psalm 50, verse 6. God Himself is judge. That Hebrew word, judge, it's not limited to our Western concept of a judge. If I say judge to you, the thing that pops into your mind is somebody in a courtroom 
wearing robes and they have a gavel and you, you know, you rise when they come into the courtroom, that sort of thing. And that's part of it. But it's also very much a government role. A, a, you are a regent. You are uh, in charge. You are God's representative. In the Old Testament, after the book of Joshua, we have the book of Judges, where there's a series of individuals that God puts in that role. And as you read through this particular book, you will discover that there's this reoccurring rhythm that happens with God's people, where they fall away. They begin worshiping pagan gods. They begin losing right relationship with God, and God uses these judges to call them back into right relationship with him. These people were overseers. But what Asaph said is that the heavens declare that God is our right overseer. As we discovered last week, God is eternal. God is never changing. God isn't going to change who he is based on what's going on in the world. So even though there are times that we, we question, God, why? It's not because God has decided to change the rules all of a sudden. It's because we most likely have or we don't interpret correctly. So my question today then was this. Is God the kind of ruler that we expect or is God even the kind of ruler that we don't try to change or modify to suit our needs or our current situation. So I picked an interesting spot to start today. Uh, if you have your Bibles handy, I want you to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 8. Now Samuel, if you will remember, was both judge and prophet. He was God's regent. Now uh, we're, we're using a new system this week. So on the screen you're going to see one uh, version. You're going to see the... I think it's the NASB, I believe, and, and I'm preaching from the ESV, so it's not that I can't read, it's just that, that what I have is a different one. So um, my translation I will read from, and you will see on the screen, hopefully very, very close. We read in, in 1 Samuel, beginning in chapter 8 and verse 1. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. I want to stop there for just a second and point out that what his sons are doing is not in right relationship with God. They've not only turned away from what they've seen their father do, but they've turned away from how their father was in right relationship with God. Also, I'd like to point out that, um, that Samuel here is, is aging out. He's, he's retiring. So he's, he's looking for proper successors to take care of doing things but also in the, in the way that, that is right, the way that is righteous and in relationship. So we pick up in verse 4, Then all the elders of Israel 
gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. Now, first of all, I don't think that Samuel needed anyone to say to him, Behold, you're old. Old is, is sort of a subjective thing. You know, we, uh, if uh, my, my, my kids' friends probably think of me as old. All right? I, I grew to love most of the congregation here very quickly because they kept referring to me as young or you know, whatever, that, that sort of thing. So you know, it's, it's, it's a subjective term. But I don't know that at this point in his life, Samuel needed all these church elders to come to him and say, by the way, you're old. Like that was a shock to him. But here's the other thing that's kind of sad. They said, your sons do not walk in your ways. And I have a feeling that that wasn't a shock to him either. There's a couple of interesting points in what they ask for. See, the first being that that, um, they want a king. And they want a king very specifically. Kings were uh, military leaders. And the Israelites were surrounded by nations that had kings. Ever since they had come into the promised land, they were doing battle with the Canaanites. And at this particular point in history, their two main enemies are going to be the Philistines, which is where Goliath comes from very soon in the narrative, and the Ammonites. But what I kept coming back to was this request. Appoint for us a king to judge us like who? All the nations. Doesn't that go against what God said he wanted for them? God never said, I'm going to make you a great nation just so you can be like everybody else. That was never stated. In fact, the exact opposite was stated. God said in Leviticus, be holy because I'm holy. Be set apart. Be different. That's what I want for you because that's me. And what do they say? They say, we want to be like everybody else. Give us a king. They've got a king. Why can't we have a king? You can almost hear it. Especially if you've ever dealt with your kids when they say that. Well, why can't I have that? My friend has that. Right? Why shouldn't I go out and buy myself a brand new car? My next door neighbor just got a brand new car. Appoint for us a king. They've got a king. Seems to be working fine for them. We want a king too. Like all the nations. God's response to this request is very telling. We pick it up and it says, And Samuel prayed to the Lord. Samuel's upset about this. So he goes to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all they say to you, for they have not rejected you. They've rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done 
from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. See, kind of going back to my suspicion that Samuel was not surprised when the elders said to him, your sons aren't following in your ways. God doesn't sound surprised to me here. Does he sound that way to you? It's not written that God says, what? You, you want a king? He knew it was coming. But then again, he's God. He knew. But I can imagine in my mind some disappointment from God. Have you ever been there? When somebody in your life makes a bad decision and you know they're going to do it, you've even counseled them not to do it, and they do it anyway, and you're disappointed, but you can't be surprised because you know them so well. And that's the other part of it that's so painful because this happens to us as human beings when we are interacting with the people that we are closest with. Those that we are most intimate with in our families, in our closest friends, those that that we have known and known well. And all you can do is sit there helpless while they make this decision you know they shouldn't make or go down this road that they should not go down and feel a little disappointed but not surprised. And in my mind, I think that's where God is. I don't think he's surprised at all. So there's that part of you, and I, I don't know, I mean, I know for me, there's always that part of me that just sort of hopes that maybe at the last second somebody will say, oh, wait a minute, maybe this isn't such a great idea. But God says to Samuel, go ahead and tell them how things are going to be under this king that they want so bad. This king they haven't even identified yet. But you want a king, this is how things are going to be. So in verse 10, we read, So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. That was a status symbol to have men running out in front of your chariot as you were going along. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be his perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards 
and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day, you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. And this warning is so powerful. Samuel warns over and over again these words, he will take. And he mentions a tenth something that we're familiar with, that that is a tithe. It's something that we associate with giving to God. But in ancient times, it was a custom when you were in a a relationship that that they referred to as a a suzerain-vassal covenant, where if you were a weak nation and you had a ruler over you to protect you, that you gave a tenth of what you your, you know, your reward, your, your first fruits, whatever it was that you did. You gave a tenth to them for their protection. Our tithe to God is modeled after that, but there's a difference. Here, it clearly states, the king is going to take it from you. God asks of us to give back to him a tenth of what, quite honestly, is already his. Because everything we have is God's. And perhaps that's a different sermon for a different day, but but here it's painted very, very clearly. You're not going to have a choice here. This king that you think you want so bad, this is how it's going to happen. These things are going to be taken from you. And not just necessities, but also extravagances. A perfumer? He's, they're going to take your vineyard, probably for wine, your olive orchards. The king is not just going to take what the king needs. The king is going to take what the king wants. And how do the people reply? The people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. There is that desire. Military leader, the warrior king, the one that's going to lead them into victory over their enemies. So God gives them what they want. He appoints Saul as the first king. And Saul is the classical concept of of king from a human perspective. Saul is, the Bible tells us Saul is is shoulders and head taller than everybody else, the most handsome man in, in Israel. If he was a contestant on The Bachelorette, he would win. He'd be the one, right? He, he would make it because he had the look. He comes from a family of money. He's, he's, you look and you say, King, that's the guy right there. That's him. From a human perspective, 
But God chooses Saul. And let's be fair, Saul starts out as a good king. But what's his downfall? Well, eventually, Saul falls out of right relationship with God. And instead of doing what God wants for him to do, he decides to go his own way. The military king. That's what we want. The military king. So fast forward about 1130 years, give or take, and turn to Matthew's gospel. Chapter 16, beginning at verse 13. This is where I get the volleyball right up above the net. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. I asked uh, for a picture to be put up. Um, do we have it? Yes, I hope. Maybe. In the meantime, I'll describe it to you. There are two especially visually striking pieces of landscape in Israel. The most prominent is a rock around which the temple was built in Jerusalem. But the second is this massive wall of rock at Caesarea Philippi. And this wall of rock is well over 100 feet straight up and about 500 feet wide. It's huge. And the more you study Jesus and his teaching, the, the more that you, you have to conceive that Jesus was the greatest teacher that ever lived. He never did anything by accident. He never said anything that wasn't exactly the right thing to say in the right place at the right time. So, Scripture tells us that Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi. See, in this district, there's nowhere that you could be that you wouldn't see this massive stone. It's huge. Now, the city of Caesarea Philippi, not just the district, but the city was actually built on top of it, this enormous rock. The city itself has an interesting history. It was originally called Panea. It was built originally for the people who prayed to the pagan god Pan. And this huge rock wall has several uh, niches that are carved into it, and there were statues to Pan throughout this whole wall so that people in the district could go to it and, and they could pray or, or make their sacrifice or whatever to, to Pan. Well, then later what happened was uh, King Philip decided to rename and expand this city. So he came in and decided to call it Caesarea Philippi. It literally means Philip's Caesar. It was designed to be uh, dedicated to the Caesar that sat in Rome. See, Rome was in charge at this point. And the Caesar that was in Rome 
not only thought of himself as a king, but also thought of himself as a god. And the Romans were pagan people. So this huge, enormous rock wall, 100 feet tall, 500 feet wide, with this giant city on it, dedicated to not one, but two gods in its history. And into the district comes Jesus with his closest followers. Jesus says, Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, as we're all familiar with, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, as people, I know if, if I ever get a chance to go there and I get to see this wall, there it is, right there. If I ever get to see that, I would look at that and I would say, now that's a rock. Wouldn't you? But it's huge. That's a rock. I would call that a rock. Sure. Rock climbers would probably want to climb that. That is a rock. But Jesus does what Jesus does so well standing around quite possibly very close to this but not in the actual city itself and why because if you're in the city on top of that you can't see that it's kind of like if you go downtown and you get a chance to go inside the world's uh, world's fair sphere if you ever get a chance to do that it's interesting to be in there but you can't see the sphere you get a great view of downtown right and from that city, you would get a great view of the surrounding area. But you certainly wouldn't be able to see the rock that you're on. So in the district, Jesus is here. And he answers them. He says, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He says to him, you are Peter. Peter, the the Greek word Petros, rock. You are the rock that I'm going to build my church on. Not that thing. Not the rock of humankind. Not human perception. Look, that's a rock. No. This is a rock. Jesus says, on this rock I will build my church. And he goes on to say this. I will give you, oh, first he says, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. But then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. It's so easy for me to visualize this interaction between Jesus and his disciples in that place. He changes their expectation of of what they think is solid, what they think is a foundation. It's an earthly idea, not a heavenly idea. But why did Jesus tell no one or tell them, instruct them to tell no one that he was the Christ. He knew of their longing. They were waiting the appearance of the Messiah as the conqueror who would free the Jews from Roman oppression. They wanted 
their warrior king. So if the crowds attempted to press Jesus into service in this way at this time, then his mission and his message would be flawed. It would be ruined. It would be compromised. See, their perception of a good king, of a righteous king, it was flawed. It was so limited to only what they could understand in their human minds. So Jesus immediately began to teach his disciples about his true mission. It's time to stop being vague here. You've said, I am the Christ. I did not deny that. So at this point, I need to explain things to you. So he goes on in verse 21. He says, it says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. It's interesting, in Jewish culture, a student would never speak out against their teacher or what their teacher was saying. Now, Peter at least had the forethought to pull Jesus aside and say this to him. But it still would have been completely wrong to do. And for Peter to rebuke it, uh, it's it's unheard of, but it's very Peter-like, isn't it? Act first, think second. I associate with Peter so well. Jesus tells him that you are setting your mind on the things of man. It's the same thing that derailed Saul's kingship. The thing that continues, I think, to plague us as people because far too often we get distracted by setting our minds on the things of man. A mere six days later, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John with him and they witness the transfiguration. They hear the voice of God say, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. Listen to Him. That's pretty clear cut, isn't it? Despite this, they still question about the coming kingdom. Their human desire to jockey for power or position in the new kingdom. See, at this point, they know who Jesus is, although he said, don't tell anyone else. So in their human minds, they're thinking, okay, he's the king, kingdom's coming. All right, he's going to be in charge. Where do we fit into all this? And we start to see it happen. In Matthew 18, 1 through 4, it says this, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them. And he said, truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. It's humility. 
Now, I know as an individual that if I really want to be in right relationship with our Lord and Savior, then humility has got to be number one on my list. I have got to humble myself and put my eyes on what God is doing. That's the key. It's not about, well, okay, you're in charge. Can I be your number two guy? Can I be your number three guy? You know, can, can I be the general assistant manager over here in, in this area? It's not about that. Jesus says we have to humble ourselves. Later, after Jesus has confirmed his mission to die and rise from the dead, he does it three times. On his way up to Jerusalem, Mark records this in Mark 10, 35 through 45. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? I have a funny feeling he already knew where this was going. And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. We want the vigorous. We, we, want, we want to be your number two guys. We want to be right there. And these are two apostles who were at the transfiguration. They were there. They didn't hear about it secondhand. Listen to my son. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant. It is for those for whom it has been prepared. And, then, and when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant to James and John. And Jesus called them, and he said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Those closest to Jesus, even the ones who were witnesses to the transfiguration, to his teaching, who heard him over and over predict his death and resurrection, were still battling with the temptation of their mind being on the things of man. Our perception of a king, our perception of a kingdom, and what that's going to look like. So as we approach Easter, as we celebrate what our Lord and our King has done for us. I want you to ask yourself this question. Do you find yourself trying to make Jesus into the king that you think you need? Or have you embraced 
the glorious and righteous Lord that he is? And are you striving to live in right relationship with him? Is your mind on the things of God or is it on the things of man? Let us pray. Father, the things of God, the things of God that should be my desire 24-7 and I must confess that it just doesn't happen. Lord, just as we questioned last week, why can we not look at the heavens and immediately see righteousness? It's because I think so often we put too much focus on the things of man. Lord, as we come into this celebration next week and then into Easter, Father, would you remind us of what an amazing and gracious and loving and kind, eternal and unchanging King that you are. Father, our desire is to know you, to be in right relationship with you. Thank you for your compassion when we slip. Thank you, Lord, for your grace and your mercy. And most importantly, as we remember your sacrifice and your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen.